At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, 10 years ago this week, a small group of young radicals declared, we are the 99% and set up camp in Zuccotti Park in Manhattan's financial district. But instead of a few people protesting for a few days, the movement exploded. Hundreds of thousands of people joined Occupy camps in more than 600 American towns and cities. For comment, we'll turn to two faculty members at the City University of New York who've spent a long time studying and thinking about Occupy, Ruth Melkman and Stephanie Luce. They've written for the nation's special issue on the 10th anniversary of Occupy. But first, we need to talk about Haiti and Haitian refugees. For that, we turn, of course, to Amy Willens. She's been writing about Haiti for a long time, most recently in the award-winning book Farewell, Fred Voodoo. And for the Washington Post, the L.A. Times, and the New York Times. Of course, she's also a longtime contributing editor at The Nation and former Jerusalem bureau chief of The New Yorker magazine. And she's also a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow. She also teaches in the literary journalism program at the University of California, Irvine. We reached her today at home in L.A. Hi, Amy. Hi, John. Well, I always open our Haiti segments with a reminder about why we care, not just because of the misery and suffering of the Haitians now, but because of Haiti's unique history. Haiti had the first successful slave revolution in history. It established the first black republic in the world. It was part of the French Revolution after 1789, even though the French under Napoleon did everything they could to crush the Haitian Revolution and then required Haiti to pay France for their freedom an immense indemnity that took more than a century to repay and goes a lot to explaining the poverty of Haiti ever since. Which brings us to this week's news. 14,000 Haitians crossed the border at Del Rio, Texas in the past week. And now the Biden administration is flying all of them back to Haiti, which is still reeling in the aftermath of that big earthquake in August 7.2 on the Richter scale. The whole story is terrible, but first of all, how did all these Haitians get to Mexico? When did they leave Haiti? Well, many of them left many years ago. You can't just traipse uh, 4,000 miles from Haiti to Del Rio in a day. So uh, they're not coming to you direct out of Haiti. They've been walking on foot and taking little jitney buses and um, taking boats and airplanes to Latin America, to South America. And then they walked through the Darien jungle into Mexico and they walked through Mexico up to the Texas border. And then they went to a bridge under Texas. They didn't all come at once at the beginning, but they all gathered together. I'm not sure exactly how that happened because it's a lot of people, 14,000 people. And now they're under an overpass homeless, and being attended to by the Americans. 
apparently the reason that so many of them came in the last week was the news that four months ago in May, Biden's new Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, announced that undocumented Haitians in the United States would be allowed to stay under the legal protection of Temporary Protected Status, TPS. He said, this is Mayorkas, quote, Haiti is currently experiencing serious security concerns, social unrest, an increase in human rights abuses, crippling poverty, lack of basic resources, which are exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic, After careful consideration, we determined that we must do what we can to support Haitian nationals in the United States until conditions in Haiti improve so that they may then safely return home, close quote, the Secretary of Homeland Security in May. Now the Biden administration is flying 14,000 people, uh, what, six flights a day for the next three weeks back to Haiti, are they finding when they get there that conditions have improved since May? Conditions have not improved since May. Obviously, the president was assassinated after that. The earthquake came after that. The um, tropical storms came after that. Nothing has gotten better. The gangs have been basically reinforced, these terrible street gangs who've been kidnapping and massacring for years now. And, you know, not only did Mayorkas offer temporary protected status to Haitians, I guess he wasn't expecting 14,000 at the border, but if he had a mind, he might have been. But beyond that, the U.S. has contributed to the situation in Haiti today. The U.S. has supported two presidents in a row who were of the foulest, in my opinion, type corrupt democracy destroyers. The U.S. supported the election of these two presidents. These two presidents were not freely and fairly elected. They were elected by very, very small uh, turnout. And the numbers were sort of scrunched and crunched to make them the victors. It's it's been a disaster uh, for U.S. policy in Haiti. And now they're returning Haitians to that. The prosecutor in Haiti investigating the assassination of the president was about to indict the de facto of leader leader of Haiti since the assassination, a man named Ariel Henry with a Y. That was last week's news that Ariel Henry was going to be indicted. What's this week's news? He fired the prosecutor. Ta-da! <laughs> so that fixed that. So Ariel Henry was confronted with a lot of turmoil, just political turmoil at that moment when the prosecutor said that the de facto prime minister may not leave the country. And then he announced that he was seeking charges against Ariel Henry in the assassination of Jovenel Moise. That's pretty high crime. Henri denied all guilt, of course, and immediately fired the prosecutor, appointed a new prosecutor who is not asking for charges. You wrote recently in the LA Times that politics in Haiti is, quote, about who will be able to steal the most with the greatest impunity, close quote. But Haiti, of course, is one of the poorest countries in the world. Is there anything there really worth stealing? Yes, I know. Americans always look at Haiti and they think, oh, my God, I'm so glad I don't live there. 
oh my God, there's nothing there. How do these people live? And that's true of the average Haitian citizen. They live on very little money. Sometimes when I buy something, I hate myself because I'm spending $300 and you know, an average Haitian family has maybe $450 or $500 a year to live on. So um, there is that when we look at Haiti, but there's also customs and ports and there's import export in Haiti. There are, um, or there were petroleum uh, discounts that put a lot of money in accounts. There was most importantly, perhaps in addition to those petroleum uh, uh, supports, there were the relief and reconstruction monies that came in after the 2010 earthquake, which was even more destructive though not as strong as the last earthquake we saw in I think August. So there's this huge amount of money that was promised to Haiti for that earthquake's reconstruction. And uh, a lot of that money did come in and uh, most of that money disappeared into pockets. There are pockets waiting to be filled in Haiti and politicians have those pockets and they would like to bring them up to the presidential level. And that's what we're seeing right now with Ariel Henry holding on to his power. And we don't know about that prosecutor, by the way, or anyway, I don't know, but he may be involved in this whole uh, fight for uh, dominance of the coffers of Haiti, which you all think are empty, but which are empty. They've been emptied. You also wrote that in a very real sense, the U.S. is responsible for what's happening now, having selected two highly corrupt Haitian presidents. You mentioned this a moment ago. We're talking here about Donald Trump. Ah, well, interestingly, no, no, no. We're talking about Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, and then uh, follow up. Donald Trump was kind of enthusiastic because he saw, whoa, my Democratic predecessors have put in power two strongmen, and I like strongmen. So he continued the support of these two people, one of whom is now been killed by the violence that he promoted in Haiti. He's now dead in his bedroom, the president. And now they have a, another flunky of the same political party that's been uh, so destructive for Haiti in the past decade. So how do you understand this bipartisan history going back a couple of decades? Biden has continued Trump. Trump continued Obama. They're so different on everything else, but they all seem to be together on Haiti. Yeah. Well, one thing I like to say is some black lives matter, but other black lives just don't matter. And what's interesting to me, too, if this is just a little aside, the Haitian community came out strongly for Biden. They saw Trump. They knew Trump was an enemy. So the Haitian American community in Florida came out for Biden. Biden needs those people again in Florida for the midterms and for the next presidential election. Will he have them? I cannot say that he will have them after his grotesque continuation of Trump policy. And I believe it's Biden sort of pandering to the uh, white supremacist crowd. I, I don't see it any other way. Although, I mean, I do think it's hard to have 14,000 people appear on your border all at once, people of any color, even if they were Italians, even if they were <laughs> Irish, even if they were Ukrainians, you go like, what? So, uh, but there's an element of racism in there without question. Well, what Biden and his people say is what's happening at the border in Del Rio is a humanitarian disaster that we've got to do everything we can to put an end to. There is a lot of truth to that. Yeah, but is the way you do that by lifting them up, sticking them in planes, 
uh, many of them for the first time in their lives, I think, and then shoveling them back into a poverty-stricken country where even to get from the port where you have dumped them, the airport where you have dumped them, to what used to be their house five years ago, they have to run the gamut of gangs. It's very hard to get into Port-au-Prince from the airport, from the port, because the gangs are running the one highway. And so you have to confront heavily armed gangs to get to where you're going. And and these Haitians, a lot of Haitians there, they know what's happening. You know, they go like, don't go to Martinson this week because da-da. And don't go up to Delma because there's a whatever. But you don't know because you're barely Haitian anymore. And yet this is what you're confronting. I don't think it's the best humanitarian solution for 14,000 people on the border. I think you could even ask Sean Penn, whom I don't always praise, but Sean Penn ran a pretty good uh, displaced persons camp after the first earthquake in Haiti on a golf course of a tennis club in Port-au-Prince. And it was more than 20,000 people. So I would just say, go ask Sean <laughs> to go down there with his Glock pistol and run it. Build, the Haitians know how to build sheds for themselves. They can form a vast encampment there until you process them and see if they have due cause to come to America rather than be shoved back into Haiti, a country I love. And I would love to live there when it was in better condition, but it's not in good condition right now. Of course, Sean Penn isn't alone in this. There's a whole string of international aid groups and NGO that have been working in Haiti since the first earthquake. Are they able to deal with the refugees who are being forcibly returned? Of course. Of course they are. They know how to build refugee camps. They know how to run health and sanitation for refugees. There's an enormous uh, crisis caravan that moves from one country to another wherever there's a natural disaster. Who, who know how to deal with this stuff. I only mentioned Sean Penn because he had this really huge one that he had no right to be running and he still ran it better than what the Americans are about to do right now. Um, I don't blame Biden for being freaked. And then it's Texas, which as we know, they don't like women in Texas. They don't like black people in Texas. We're a little concerned about having Texas in the union right now. <laughs> yes, we are. It's got a border with Mexico. We could wish that New York had a border with Mexico or that Rhode Island had a border with Mexico. But as it stands, we have Texas and California. They ended up in Texas. Well, the, the most important part of your work on Haiti for me is your reporting on the grassroots groups and civil society organizations that are committed to honest government, groups that are working for real democratic elections right now. What can you tell us about them? They're still doing it. These people are incredible. I mean, they have an interest in taking power for uh, not just for themselves, but for all the people who have been effectively totally excluded from power um, during the past decade. And those people are the Haitian people. And what these groups have done is they've gathered together under an umbrella called the Commission for a Haitian Solution to the Crisis. And indeed, it is a crisis. They've now formed like a central committee. I hate to use that term because it seems like it could be socialist and that would be bad. So it's not socialism at all. It is a, a unifying umbrella for grassroots groups like people who work in the shanty towns to uh, bring water in and to bring doctors in, uh, people who teach, uh, they're commonly called teachers. Unions, yes, it's true. The, the few pathetic, poor, small unions that Haiti still allows. 
you know, everybody is under this umbrella, really doctors, lawyers, all the people whose whose cohort have been kidnapped during the past 10 years. It's it's a huge group of people, political parties, even, yes, members of the private sector have, have spoken to and joined up with this group. And I'm hoping that the United States will finally um, acknowledge that this group exists. That is to say, the State Department, certainly the Haiti caucus in the U.S. Congress has acknowledged it, acknowledged it, supports it. And many, many Haitian Americans in the diaspora also who are a part of this umbrella group. So I think it's a very positive thing. And all along since the president was assassinated, which was a huge disaster of security for everybody, because as I said, he was killed in his bedroom by his own security people, laxness and running away and allowing the murderers in. Everyone feels terribly insecure in Haiti if the president can be killed and nothing can be done about it. But since the assassination and the earthquake and uh, all that's been going on now, I think it's a moment where if the international community would just open its eyes to Haiti for once, a lot could change now. A lot could change now. If you want to know more about the Commission for a Haitian Solution to the Crisis, you can go to their website, the Commission for a Haitian Solution to the Crisis. Amy Willens wrote about Haiti most recently for the LA Times. Thank you, Amy. This was great. Thanks, John. Ten years ago this month, a small group of young radicals declared, we are the 99% and set up camp in Zuccotti Park in Manhattan's financial district. They called themselves Occupy Wall Street. They focused on challenging, skyrocketing inequality and entrenched corporate power. But instead of a few people protesting for a few days, the movement exploded into thousands of encampments outside city halls and in city centers across America and around the world, lasting in some cases for months, transforming the left in America and giving rise to a new generation of political activists. Then they were shut down and Occupy was over. The nation is publishing a special issue assessing the legacy and lessons of the Occupy movement, perhaps the most unexpected success of the left in living memory, but also one with some significant flaws and weaknesses. For comment, we turn to two people who teach labor and urban studies at the City University of New York who've been studying Occupy, Ruth Melkman and Stephanie Luce. Along with Penny Lewis, they've written the lead piece in the nation's special issue, Ruth Melkman is the author most recently of Immigrant Labor and the New Precariat. Hi, Ruth. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. And Stephanie Luce's books include Labor Movements, Global Perspectives, and Fighting for a Living Wage. Stephanie, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. You guys have been studying the Occupy movement for a long time. What was your method? What, are, what have you been looking for? Stephanie? So we initially did a study uh, right when Occupy started. Uh, we began to look at what was going on in the park, and we launched a survey of people at the May Day 2012 march associated with Occupy Wall Street. And by that time, actually, people had already been kicked out of Zuccotti Park, but they were still actively engaged in Occupy Wall Street um, working groups. 
So we did the survey um, talking to hundreds of people there at the at the march. And then we also did in-depth interviews with key leaders in the Occupy movement. And we selected people based on uh, who was involved in different kinds of working groups within the park, within the Occupy movement, uh, the labor working group, the media, the tech teams, and so forth. So um, we talked to 25 people at that time. And then we've gone back 10 years later uh, on this anniversary to talk to people in this past year about what have they been up to in these past 10 years? What are the lessons they've learned? Uh, what do they take from the Occupy experience? Lots of people have lots of ideas about what Occupy did wrong, but let's start with what they did right, what they accomplished, what we can learn from their success. Maybe we should start with the tactic of occupying public space in urban centers and staying, staying for a long time. This wasn't a demonstration or a protest march or a teach-in or a political campaign. Of course, there have been lots of other kinds of occupations, student radicals occupying the school president's office, protesters occupying congressional offices, and of course, the grandfather of all occupations in America, the auto workers occupation of the GM plant in Flint for 44 days in 1936 and 1937, and lots of other countries where workers have occupied factories for a long time. But, but this was different uh, let's talk about the significance of occupying public space. Ruth. Well, this came in the aftermath of some similar occupations around the world. Tahrir Square in Cairo, the Indignados occupations in Madrid and Barcelona, and and the occupation, um, sorry, the Occupy Wall Street crowd were very aware of that global chain of events. And in fact, the um, form that the occupation took replicated. I think that it was Occupy Wall Street three years after the meltdown of the financial system in 2008 and the anger that the population as a whole and progressives in particular had toward Wall Street at that time. And um, Wall Street was didn't really pay the price of the meltdown that it created. And the many people in the broader population did pay that price. So it really struck a chord with the wider public and so that was really important. And the tactic of physically occupying a space also was, as you said, not unique, but very powerful in that anyone could come and check out what was happening at Zuccotti Park. Um, the people who stayed there for long periods of time built very strong relationships with one another, created a whole mini society in the park. They offered education, health care, food, um, sleeping, obviously, so it, it really was a kind of prefigurative moment, too, of trying to build, you know, on a small scale, the kind of society people hoped might exist in the future. And the other big thing was uh, we are the 99 percent, a very simple claim and a turns out one that had tremendous resonance. Stephanie, let's talk about that. Yeah, a number of uh, the people we've interviewed said that that in part was part of the appeal that they felt like it kind of spoke to everyone. It spoke to the issues they were concerned about. The people came from different areas of work or different interests, environmentalists, labor, um, feminist movements, anti-racist movements. But the framing of We Are the 99% left it open for everyone to, to feel it was their movement. That included some on the right as well. In the early days, there were, you know, libertarian voices out there and there were, you know, voices from across the spectrum. So that was an issue to work through. But it created a sense that 
um, of naming the enemy that hadn't happened since the 2008 crash. You know, that the right wing came out after the 2008 crash, naming the enemy as, you know, people that work for the public sector, people that were drawing a pension, people that were poor and bought a house. So this was flipping that narrative and saying, no, the enemy is actually the 1%. And Occupy was remarkable also for its internal rules. It was a leaderless movement with what they called a horizontal structure. That was quite an achievement, Ruth. Well, yes, and that replicated, again, what had gone on elsewhere, like the indignados in Spain, for example, had the same aspiration of a horizontalist movement with no hierarchy. They they called it leaderful, not leaderless, but the fact that they refused to identify individuals who might be sort of peeled off and turned into spokespeople or something like that for the media was very important because it made it impossible to focus on the foibles of some individual or individuals. And instead, the public and the media had to confront the reality that there were lots and lots of people doing this. The horizontalism was really important because it it reflected a kind of disillusion with conventional forms of politics and the idea that bureaucracy was something really dangerous and to be spurned and that, you know, individuals who had too much power in a movement were problematic and so on. Although in the end, as it exploded into a much larger occupation than anyone expected, the horizontal structure also had some problematic aspects in that it was really hard to run a meeting with thousands of people at once. We'll get to that in a minute. It exploded, and that was another one of the remarkable and, as you say, completely unexpected things about it. You know, it's one thing to have big Occupy camps in Los Angeles or San Francisco where there's hundreds of activists or full-time organizers, but Occupy was all over the place in the United States and all over the world. My favorite report in The Nation at the time was written by Mike Davis, who traveled to small towns in the Imperial Valley uh, east of San Diego. He wrote about Occupy El Centro. This is a town no one's ever been to. You know, there were 40 or 50 people in the Occupy camp there. Mike wrote, quote, I went to El Centro thinking that I might find a simple copy of the Wall Street protest, a copycat action unlikely to grow in the hostile climate of Imperial County. What I discovered, in fact, was a desert flower brought to blossom by a combination of long cultivation, drawing on a long activist tradition, a lot of sunlight, he says, dialogue via social media, and equally important, the existence of a local greenhouse that is a physical space for meeting and interaction. How do you understand the tremendous explosion of Occupy into all of these smaller, unexpected places across America? Yeah, I I think it's extraordinary. What we know from social movements is that a lot of times people try things and they fail, and it's mostly failure. Um, And in fact, in New York City, just a few months before, people had occupied another section of Wall Street in something called Bloombergville, and that only lasted a week or so and then was kind of dispersed. So why did this particular one take off so much in New York and then spread around the country? Uh, I think we'll never really know that, but I think some of the factors um, that we've named, which is that it was open to the 99%. It did speak to the pent-up anger that people had had since the 2008 crisis. It was tapping into the energies of young people that had kind of come of age in that crisis, had been thinking they had been doing everything right. And 
you know, we're inheriting this world of, you know, chaos and, and economic hardship, whether they themselves were experiencing it or their parents, right? What you just read from Mike Davis actually, you know, made me think also even of last summer, and we saw the same thing happen with Black Lives Matters protests yes. all over the country um, in the same kind of unexpected ways. And so I think, you know, it's hard to predict which are the ones that are going to succeed and which ones won't. But there were certainly a lot of factors that came together at the right time. Ruth, you want to add? Yeah, well, in the quote from Mike Davis, you mentioned, I and mean, he mentioned um, social media. And I think that was a key ingredient. It, there was also conventional media that, that amplified the Zuccotti Park occupation and made people all over the country, all over the world aware of it. And some of them chose to set, start their own occupations. But social media, this was one of the first major movements in which um, the activists themselves communicated over social media, the first in the United States. The same thing happened in Egypt in the Arab Spring. Today, 10 years later, the police and other state agents are very adept at social media themselves, but that was not the case in September 2011. And so this was a huge resource and an advantage that the occupiers had and that they exploited very, you know, imaginatively and successfully. And that, of course, also helped spread the word around the country and the world. Of course, lots of people have been thinking ever since Occupy shut down about the limitations, the problems, the weaknesses, the failures. What do you consider the most significant, Ruth? Well, I'm not sure it's a failure exactly, but in terms of a limitation, um, the strength of Occupy was also its biggest weakness, which was its focus, its unrelenting focus on class inequality. We are the 99% and relative lack of attention to racial oppression, gender oppression, the oppression of sexual minorities. There were people involved in Occupy who pointed that out while it was underway and tried to address that problem. But in general, that didn't really um, ever succeed in, in any big way. And so you know, that was one of the big limitations. I do think that since then, many of the activists involved continue to be involved in other movements, including things like Black Lives Matter, Me Too, and so on. So they've kind of made up for it since. But that was a limitation at the time. And Stephanie, what's at the top of your list? You know, one of our interviewees, Reverend Mike Alex, said that it was a way for powerless people to gain power quickly. And I think it, it that's what direct action does. That kind of action will get attention and will uh, create an upsurge, but it is not sustainable. And people could not sustain life in the park between the police presence, um, under, undercover disruptions, um, and just trying to sustain daily life and also trying to service the people that came into the park and feed people and, and uh, house them and provide services just was not sustainable. So I think, you know, for most people, they saw that it needed to transition into other forms, taking uh, building power, whether it was through electoral power or through unions or through other kinds of um, momentum building, but it couldn't, it had to transition into another form. And Occupy was also criticized for having a lack of concrete demands. Now, Occupy itself proclaimed that was one of their great achievements. They did not have a legislative agenda. They were not supporting particular candidates. What do you think of the criticism that they lacked concrete demands and that that was a, a serious flaw? I mean, at the time, it meant that anybody could bring their own grievances into the movement, regardless of what those were. So it became a kind of multiplier of uh, activism and energy. They were also extremely disdainful of electoral activity, partly because this was a generation that the, most of the occupiers were relatively young, and they were the same generation that had enthusiastically supported Obama in 2008 and were extremely disappointed in the results. 
He didn't really deliver on the promises of hope and change that many of them had been attracted to. And so that made people, you know, quite suspicious of an electoral agenda. Of course, the very success of Occupy changed that later. And many of the occupiers went on to be big supporters of Bernie Sanders, for example, as well as some of them candidates themselves for local and state office. So things have evolved in the last 10 years. But at the time, that was a very uh, central plank of the of the movement. And Stephanie, we've also heard a lot of criticism of what some people call the tyranny of structurelessness. Let's talk about that. So I think that that also has a double-edged sword because I'm um, going back to the early idea of the horizontalism. It was a way for people to come in and, and engage and feel like they were part of it. Um, but that kind of work takes a lot of training. It's it's a skill that has to be developed and it has to be adjusted to the size of the group. So when something like that happens, there are leaders because there are people that come in with political sophistication, with political tools. They know how to work the system or disruptors have a lot of power in that kind of system as well. And so I think people have learned, you know, a number of the activists that we talk to that still feel fairly committed to horizontalism say that they they might do some things differently, still keep it as participatory and ho- mostly horizontalist, but structure it so that it was based on inclusion instead of trying to exclude negative voices. And finally, we need to talk about the legacy of the Occupy movement for us today. Ruth, you mentioned briefly that the Bernie Sanders campaign is very much a kind of a response to the Occupy movement. Bernie Sanders, of course, has been around for a long time, much before 2011. But I don't think he would have vaulted into the, you know, a major presidential candidacy the way he has um, since then, Had if it were not for Occupy and the kind of ideas that it validated. So, you know, there there were many people around who had critiques of capitalism and awareness of skyrocketing inequality and all the rest. But what Occupy did was make those things mainstream and give them traction with the everybody who participates in the political conversation. And that really was something unprecedented in our lifetimes, I think. And Stephanie, what do you see as the most significant parts of the legacy of the Occupy movement? I think what happened was there was a shift in consciousness amongst the left at the time. You know, some lots of people were new to politics through Occupy, but many were seasoned or had been around even for you know a while and been really kind of demoralized by the anti-war movement in the early 2000s. And I think what this did was to shift their confidence to say, like, we actually can build power. We can get the world's attention. Um, we should take ourselves more seriously and dig in and, and take this on full time. And I think it laid the foundation for that confidence going in all of these different directions, whether it was Black Lives Matter, Standing Rock, Bernie Sanders, DSA, like saying we're gonna we're gonna go in our areas of work and we're gonna we're gonna really contest for power in a real way. The nation's special issue on the 10th anniversary of the Occupy movement is out this week. It includes a piece, The Transformation of Protest, written by Ruth Melkman and Stephanie Luce, along with Penny Lewis, who wasn't able to join us today. You can read it online now at thenation.com. Ruth and Stephanie, thanks so much for your work, and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having us. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. 
D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.